Hello everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome and thank you for joining us. If not, welcome back. Just a couple of announcements before we jump in. Uh, first is we finished, we finished our uh, Be the Bridge discussion this last week and it was good. And just wanna let you know that we're intending to have more conversations about racial justice in the future. So look for those. They're opportunities for spiritual formation for you and your family. Uh, to engage in a really healthy conversation uh, within the church for how we can be a voice for being the bridge when it comes to racial justice. So um, look for the next one of those coming up soon. Next up, we have a new opportunity this summer for all of us to kind of lean into something that I started many years ago and uh, saw that my friend J.R. Briggs was posting something on it about online uh, probably over a year ago. I think they started uh, this over a year ago and what it is, is they were hand copying the book of Luke as a spiritual formation practice. So what you do is you get a journal and you just start making a commitment to write down a certain number of verses each day until you finish the whole book. And um, I have done that in the past with the, uh, the Psalms. I've written the Psalms down in a Psalms journal. And it's really interesting what happens to you when you do that. You slow down and you look at the text in a new way as you write it out word for word. To say a little bit more about that, let me just show you this video with my friend J.R. Briggs and tell you what we're gonna do this summer. Hi there, I'm J.R. Briggs. Over the past year, I've challenged people to engage with the Bible in a very unique way. First, I invited others to join me to hand copy the Gospel of Luke, to write out the book by hand. Much to my surprise, hundreds of people from around the world joined in our effort. Then, after finishing Luke, I invited people to hand copy the Gospel of John as we led up to and through the Easter season. If you've joined us before, you know that hand copying a book of the Bible is unique. It teaches us to slow the process down and we notice new details and ask new questions about the text. While reading a large portion of an entire book of the Bible straight through is beneficial, hand copying slows us down in order to see the depth of what we're reading. It's the difference between water skiing and scuba diving. When you water ski, you can understand the beauty and the contours and the geographical personality of a lake. But when you scuba dive that lake, you experience its depths, its dimensions, and what's happening well below the surface of the water. The process of hand copying books of the Bible has been deeply formative and fun for me and many others. And some of you have asked, what will the next book be? Now, we're going to be jumping into the book of Proverbs. Why Proverbs? Well, our world is full of division, uncertainty, complexity, and seemingly endless ideologies. And one of the greatest things that followers of Jesus can do today is to cultivate a life of wisdom. Recently, some friends and I were talking, and we realized that one of the most practical ways that we can cultivate wisdom is by hand copying the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a fantastic book, full of practical wisdom for life. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, it's amazing just how relevant and applicable it is to our lives today. Proverbs reminds us that we're not after more knowledge and ideas. Instead, what we're after is embodied knowledge and lived ideas, rooted in truth and lived out in our everyday lives. Hand copying is our attempt to go scuba diving in the lake called Proverbs. Now, summer seems to have a different kind of rhythm and cadence than the other months of the year. 
which is why we believe it's a great time for us to hand copy this book. We're officially going to begin on June 1st. Now, you don't have to start on June 1st. In fact, you can start today if you wish. If you want to join us, here are three practical next steps that you can take. First, find a notebook, pen, and Bible translation of your choice and commit to write out just 10 verses a day. If you fall behind, there's no pressure and no guilt. But here's the cool thing. There are 915 verses in the book of Proverbs, and there are a total of 91 days in June, July, and August. If you start on June 1st and average about 10 verses a day, you can finish the book of Proverbs by September 1st. That's right, 10 verses every day, and you finish by the end of the summer. Second, visit the link below at kairospartnerships.org blog proverbs. There you'll find tips, resources, and other practical tools to help you prepare for hand-copying Proverbs. And third, invite others to join you in the process. We have loved hearing from people all over the world. We've heard from participants in five continents who've hand-copied books of the Bible in nine different languages. We've seen parents and kids participate together, as well as small groups and entire women's ministries. We've noticed people starting Facebook groups and inviting friends to share what they're learning through the process. And we've learned of church leaders and pastors who have inspired their entire congregations and invited them to participate in it as well. Share with others, share it on social media, post photos, share what you're learning, and offer questions that you're asking by using the hashtag handcopyingproverbs. If you're considering joining us, here's more good news. You don't have to have a Bible degree. Hey, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to participate. You don't have to have great penmanship, you don't even have to write it flawlessly in your notebook. The purpose of hand copying is not perfection or legibility, but participation and engagement. I'd love for you to participate with me and many others around the world on this journey through Proverbs this summer. Will you join us? So that's what we're going to be doing this summer. I invite you to join me as we, uh, as we hand copy Proverbs together as a church. We want to take time to do that, and we'll probably... Um, have a few opportunities where we'll come together here at the church and have like a handwriting seminar together. We'll come in, into one of the rooms here at the, at the building, at the campus, and you can bring your journal and we'll have uh, snacks and that kind of thing. So look for that at a later date. But in the meantime, find a journal that works for you and, and get started in however much or little capacity you'd like to do. You can do more than the 10 verses. You can do less. There's no hurry. There's no rush. There's there's not, nothing wrong if you don't if you miss a day, like JR said, but I, I am anticipating that it will be a good practice for all of us, and I can't wait to see um, what you learn from that process and get some feedback from you in the future. Okay, today we're going to run fast through uh, a lot of parts of the story in Genesis. We're basically going to just skim the surface, and we're going to cover a huge amount of text. Actually, we're going to go from Genesis chapter 5 through 6, 7, 8, and part of 9. Um, we're just going to touch on chapter 5. It's a genealogy. 6 begins a new story in Genesis about a character you've probably heard of, Noah and the story of the flood. And any serious scholar of the Bible will tell you that this story about Noah and the flood is very, very similar to an ancient Mesopotamian story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And you may have heard of this also if you've gone to any state college or taken anthropology courses, world religions courses. I heard about it when I was at Arizona State. And here's the thing, the Epic of Gilgamesh comes before the writing of the story of Noah by a large amount of time. It predates it quite a bit. And so it might seem that the Hebrews then are just making this story up, that 
Maybe they're just borrowing this story from another people group and culture that came before them. One of the things that I believe is happening in the Bible, and if you go back to the first week when we talked about genre and context, this will make more sense, and that kind of literature and what we're reading really matters. What I believe is going on here is that this section really isn't historical narrative. It's what scholars and even the Jewish people call prehistory. And that's not to say that this didn't actually happen. In fact, I would suggest that the fact that there are two cultures that are writing this same story, but with some differences, it lends a lot of credence and credit to the story. In fact, every ancient culture in the world has a flood story. In fact, you can look this up by searching flood myth or ancient flood stories online. But what I find most interesting is Moses, as he's writing this story of Genesis, he's repainting these other ancient flood stories with a different kind of God. And that's the revolutionary genius and distinction about this story. This is not a God who takes. This is a God who provides. This God has given you everything. This God leads the way. He's loving. He's not mean. He's not angry. We take for granted that kind of stuff in our day and age and context when we've read the scriptures. This was a revolutionary and radical new concept of who God was and is. So we're going to talk about Noah, but we're not, what we're not going to do is talk about the historicity of it. There is fascinating research about the flood and where the ark is or could be right now and all of that. But the goal here is not so much to provide the proof of the accuracy of the story of Noah and the flood. The goal is to get back to what we talked about in our earlier series about uh, authorial intent. Authorial intent is simply this. What did the author mean when he wrote it? That's what we're interested in here. What kind of conversation is he inviting us into? Now, there is no question at all about the parallels you will find between the story of Noah in the Bible and the Epic of Gilgamesh. In the epic, but in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is a king. And the interesting thing about Gilgamesh is that He's two-thirds God, so he's two-thirds God and one-third man. And as the story goes, he has a friend, and then his friend dies. So because of this, Gilgamesh is then obsessed with living forever, for finding kind of the secret to immortality. Along comes this character in the story called Upnapishtim, who is, Upnapishtim is the Noah character in the story. So Gilgamesh goes in search of him because Upnapishtim has found the key to immortality. And he got that because he survived a global flood. So I want to share this synopsis with you now, and then we'll talk about it. Utnapishtim's name means he who saw life, though he who saw death would be just as appropriate, since he witnessed the destruction of the entire world. The former king and priest of Shurapak, Utnapishtim was the former recipient of the god Ea's favor. His disdain for Gilgamesh's desperate quest for eternal life might seem ungenerous since Upnapishtim is immortal. But Upnapishtim must carry a heavy load of survivor's guilt. He doesn't know why of all the people in the world that Ea chose him to live. But he does know that he tricked hundreds of his doomed neighbors into laboring day and night to build the boat that would carry him and his family to safety while he abandoned their fates. So, Upnapishtim tricked all of his friends to help him build a boat that was gonna save him, but kill everybody else. So let's continue. What Utnapishtim gained by his trickery was a great boon for humankind, however. He received a promise from the gods that henceforth only individuals would be subject to death and that humankind as a whole would endure. When Utnapishtim tested Gilgamesh by asking him to stay awake for a week, he knew that he would fail. 
just as he knew that Gilgamesh wouldn't profit from the magical plant that had the power to make him young again. Gilgamesh is one-third man, which is enough to seal his fate. All men are mortals, and all mortals die. Yet, since Utnavishtim seized life, he knows that life extends beyond the individual, that families, cities, and cultures endure. So in the end, Gilgamesh's pursuit for immortality, it doesn't work out. He doesn't live forever, but in a sense he does in the legacy that he leaves for people around him, for his family, for friends, for cities. So now that we've taken a look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, kind of a synopsis, this parallel ancient cultural story that is very similar to the flood account in the scriptures, what we want to do now is compare what's the same and what's different. Because it's clear that the author of Genesis is trying to make a distinction between that story, other stories, and his story. So remember what we're not trying to do today is prove or disprove whether Noah and the flood actually happened. That's, a, that's an entirely different conversation. What we are trying to do is ask the question, are there some lessons we can learn beyond this history question that might help us to be able to understand what God is up to in the world? Now, Noah is called a righteous man in the scriptures. And the question that I've landed on uh, in the last several years is what, when I read this story, it's like, what makes Noah righteous? Like, what does that mean? His name literally means he rests. Noah means he rests. Now, if you've been here for this series and you go back to the first part of it in Genesis 1, how do we celebrate God making the world? By rest. Moad. And for a group of people who've been slaves in Egypt for 400 plus years, their whole worldview and identity has been wrapped up in the idea that you're only valuable because you produce something. And if you don't produce something, you're not valuable. And God says, no, you're valuable because I made you. Again, that was a revolutionary concept. So why don't you relax and rest in the grace of a God who does the work for you? The deal is that Noah is willing to take God at his word. And so he rests while the rest of the world is not resting and is not properly managing creation, believing that they aren't enough and then falling into the temptation of covering and hiding and blaming and taking from others, just like we talked about last week. While they're doing what they're not supposed to be doing, Noah rests. And God looks at him and says, you, you're righteous. You're a righteous dude. So, let's read some passages about Noah and figure out what makes him righteous and what that means and doesn't mean. So, Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, or some versions say in his generation, and he walked faithfully with God. First off, wouldn't you love to have that said of you, that you are righteous and blameless? And it says, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. So Noah's reputation is as a man who was righteous. Now let's fast forward to verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then fast forward to Genesis 7 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So the question is, what makes him righteous? Take a look at verse 5 in chapter 7. It says, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So what makes him righteous? What makes Noah righteous? He does what the Lord commands him to do. He is willing to do what God asks him to do. But 
I've always found that a bit odd too because of something that happens later that we're about to talk about in just a minute. We'll move into that. Here's something to note. The rabbis that come later in the timeline of the, of the Jewish people, they call Noah, quote, the man with the fur coat. And what they mean is when it's cold outside, you have a choice. You can put on a coat and you can warm yourself up or you can build a fire and you can warm everyone around you. The coat is a choice all about yourself or building a fire that takes care of everyone. And the deal is, is that they observe that Noah never ever pleads for anyone. He never pleads for anyone. And they, and they figured that out already. So let's fast forward to another character in the scriptures that God uses. What Abraham, for instance, what makes Abraham a man that God would use? What do we see in him that we love so much? Well, I'd wager it's this. He asks God to spare an entire city for 10 righteous people. And he begs for them. But God, if you, if you just had a few righteous, would you save the city? And that's Abraham's heart. He puts himself out there to serve other people. That's the kind of guy that God uses in scriptures. But does Noah plead for anybody? He never tells anybody why he's building the boat. No, he, he doesn't intervene on behalf of anyone. But he's righteous. He follows the rules. Have you ever hung out with a rule follower that really doesn't care about you? They're pretty special, aren't they? It says he's righteous in his generation, and we would love that to be said of us, but there's this other reality right there in front of us about Noah, right, that reveals something really important. Genesis verse 22. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Who was left? Only Noah. The question I have is this. What would have happened if Noah would have pleaded for the people around him? Abraham did. Moses did. This is a pattern of the kind of people that God wants to use. And yet Noah's righteous, but he doesn't plead for anybody around him. He doesn't stand up for them. Like most all of the characters in the Bible, Noah, he's not perfect. And I think maybe he misses something a little bit. Now, God does fulfill his promise, not in quite the way that Noah would have him to. They're on that boat for a long time, which is really interesting because we just, I hear articles already, people are ready to get back on cruise ships for a long period of time after COVID. Uh, but it takes a while for an entire planet full of water to recede. So they're there on that ark for a long time. Moving on to Genesis 8, verse 20. They get off the ark. It says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I, never, will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease. So God's promise is, I'm never going to destroy the earth with water again. Let's look at this in Genesis 9 verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, uh, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood 
to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God effectively signs a contract on the dotted line with Noah and his sons. And that's the end of the story, right? Well, not quite. There's a bit more to tackle next week, starting in verse 18. We're going to cover the last part of chapter 9 in next week's teaching. But one of the things that I wrestle with in this story is, how did Noah do at transferring his legacy, you know, his righteousness? How did he do with that? My concern is that in his righteous way of doing everything that the Lord commands, he's completely missing the point that his legacy is rooted in who he's invested in, in his kids. And, and, and I'm concerned about it because it doesn't seem like he's concerned about other people to begin with. So is he even invested in his kids? And this, this harkens back to the lesson from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh doesn't live forever, he wants to, but the synopsis says that he does leave a legacy. Does Noah leave a legacy of righteousness with those who are around him? Sure, be righteous in your generation, but will your children count you as righteous by what's handed down to them? What will they inherit from us, from our character and our competencies? And this matters a lot to me and Beth. We are co-equal spiritual leaders in our home, and we talk about what we're passing on to our kids, and we think this matters. I mean, I love being a part of this church. I love being a pastor. But if it means it would cost me my kids' formation, or for that matter, their relationship with me and Beth, I'd get out of here so fast, faster than the Millennium Falcon jump into hyperspace, just because I love my kids more. And by the way, you should want a pastor that's willing to say that. One of the lessons that troubles me, and I see this over and over again in ministry, where people are working so hard to be right, is that they miss the opportunity to transfer their faith to the people around them. What will your family and friends say about this when they come to your funeral, when they see you for the last time? What stories will they tell? Will they say that you were a person that lived out what you said? Or will they say, that was a person who loved me and showed me what God was like by their actions. That was a person who helped me experience who Jesus really is. What will they say about you? Because what we see immediately in Noah's life is that just within his children's lives, one generation later, everything is an absolute mess. There are big problems and even curses immediately. Somehow, being righteous in his generation does not transfer to righteousness in the generations after. And I see this happen a lot. And I'm not picking on anybody because I've seen this in my own family history, and likely you have too. But here's an example. Like my daughter is this prolific writer. She's seven years old but she's already working on writing stories and she's been writing in journals apparently since she was six. She pulled one out that she found. She thought it was something else. She was like, oh, I wrote in this and she remembered it and showed it to me last week, the other day. She read something of it from, to me and my son uh, and when she got to the part about me, she wrote, daddy likes to read the news on his phone all the time. Like, is that how I want her to remember me or that I worked all the time or that I was always working on a sermon and didn't have enough time to play? I mean, is that the kind of thing I want her to remember about my faith? That it was just about the pastor role in the church? Or is it about my personal relationship with Jesus and how I pursue that and how I value her? How many times have you heard stories of spiritual leaders whose children hate them? Yeah, they were righteous, but they didn't understand that immortality is not rooted in living forever. It's rooted in the legacy that we leave. It's not rooted in getting your name on some plaque or a brick or a trophy or a bench or a wall or an award for service 
for the time and money you've donated. It's about love and relational intentionality with those who are around you. So that's the question. What is the legacy that you're leaving? And it's a, it's a powerful question. What will people remember about your faith? Will they call us people who keep the rules? Or will they call us people who invited us to a better version of Jesus living in us? I mean, I don't know, but I think the second one is better. I mean, there's no question that I want to be counted as a person who's righteous. But more valuable than that, I want to be a person that leaves a legacy of inspiring other people to walk closer to Jesus. This matters. Till next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.